Proverbs chapter 23, let's begin in verse 19. Listen, my son, and be wise, and direct your heart in the way. Do not be with heavy drinkers of wine, or with gluttonous eaters of meat. For the heavy drinker and the glutton will come to poverty, and drowsiness will clothe one with rags. Skip down to verse 29. Who has woe? Who has sorrow? Who has contentions? Who has complaining? Who has wounds without cause? Who has redness of eyes? Those who linger long over wine. Those who go to taste mixed wine. Do not look on the wine when it is red, when it sparkles in the cup, when it goes down smoothly. At the last, it bites like a serpent and it stings like a viper. Your eyes will see strange things and your mind will utter perverse things. And you will be like one who lies down in the middle of the sea or one one who lies down on the top of a mast. They struck me, but I did not become ill. They beat me, but I did not know it. When shall I awake? I will seek another drink. And this was the day you chose to come to church. (laughs) Honey, we probably shouldn't have planned that caker for this afternoon. Bad timing. Let's pray for a moment. Father God, it's your word we open, not ours. It's your word we seek to understand, not our own understanding. It is your wisdom, Jesus, that we want to live by. And so I just ask that as we put a lot out on the table today, that you will help us to truly consider the impact for each of our lives. And that you, Jesus, would train us up in the way we should all go. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. If I had to face all at one time all of the multiple issues in my life that need course correction, I think I would lose my mind. I would absolutely go insane. There's too much. And that's why I am so thankful for the Lord giving us His Word. And it's why I so much enjoy going through God's Word book by book, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. Because what the Lord does with me, as I hope He does with you, is He helps us to deal with issues in our lives one at a time. He doesn't deal with them all. He says, let's just work on this one today. And then we'll work on that one when we get there. Well, we've gotten there. And the issue, you might think, this morning is drinking. In some ways, yeah. But in other ways, it's a much, much bigger issue that we're going to deal with today. And let me encourage you, I did not set out in studying this to do a lesson on the ills of that demon liquor. You know, And I didn't set out to, to bring a, a study or a teaching or a message to you all that would send anybody out feeling guilty. That's not the point of this. But to honestly say, what does the Bible say? What does history teach us? What does Scripture lay out before us? What do we know to be truth? To lay it all out on the table and then to say, okay, what do we do with that? What do you do with that? What what do I do with that? And truly, this is one of those teachings where each and every one of us will have to decide for yourselves. You don't have to decide what I decide. You don't have to think what I think. But if you want to be right... No, I'm kidding. 
this is for each of us to weigh out biblically. Now, we're going to take an honest look at drinking, but again, there's a larger issue. Paul said it this way in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 4, You, brethren, are not in darkness that the day would overtake you like a thief. For you are all sons of light and sons of day. We're not of night nor of darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do. Let us be alert and sober. Those who sleep do their sleeping at night. And those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we are of the day, let us be sober. Having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we're awake or asleep, we'll live together with Him. Now, if you're not a Jesus follower this morning... You don't consider yourself a Christian, or you're on the line, you're not sure, you're kind of waffling about the whole issue. You get to listen in as the rest of us struggle with a great reality among Christians. And the rest of us struggle with the issue of of what it means to be righteous without being religious. Now to a non-Christian that might sound shocking that a Christian does not want to be religious. I hate religion. That's why I'm in a barn. You know, I don't like traditional, legalistic, hard and fast, guilt-ridden religion. And that's not what this is about. But still, how do you live a life where you're righteous or pursuing righteousness without being that kind of religious, judgmental person? How do you live wise without being a wise guy? You know, how do you, how do you be in Christ without holding others in contempt? How do you pursue righteousness? without becoming holier than thou. And I I struggle with these things. And so we have one issue that's just going to be kind of the the point, the thing we'll look at today, but these are the bigger questions surrounding it. The issue is drinking. Let's start start with the positive. Positive aspects. Wine is the very picture in the Bible of joy and celebration. Joy and celebration. Proverbs chapter 3, verse 9 says, honor the Lord from your wealth and from the first of all your produce so your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will overflow with new wine. Proverbs chapter 9 verse 2. Speaking of wisdom, she has prepared her food. She has mixed her wine. She's also set her table. She sent out her maidens. She calls from the top of the heights of the city. Whoever is naive, let him turn in here. To him who lacks understanding, she says, Come, eat of my food and drink of the wine I have mixed. And note, note this, wisdom says eat my food. Drink my wine, which implies a different kind of wine than the wine perhaps we would typically seek to drink. In the kingdom, the coming kingdom age, Joel the prophet describes it like this. He says, In that day the mountains will drip with sweet wine, and the hills will flow with milk, and all the brooks of Judah will flow with water. A spring will go out from the house of the Lord, that is the temple, to water the valley of Shittim. Amos chapter 9, verse 13. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman will overtake the reaper, and the treader of grapes, him who sows seed, when the mountains will drip sweet wine, and all the hills will be dissolved. Also I will restore the captivity of my people Israel, and they will rebuild the ruined cities and live in them, and they will also plant vineyards and drink their wine and make gardens and eat their fruit. What a celebration! In the kingdom age, it's going to be phenomenal. I love Amos' description because it says basically 
basically before you can get out there and begin to tread the grapes, before you can get out there and, and pick the grapes, the wine's already flowing. Before you can harvest the, the grain, it's already on the table. So amazing, so wonderful, so joyful is the coming kingdom age. And maybe that's why Jesus, in His very first miracle, chose to do something that, well, it's confused many of us ever since. Turning your Bibles over to John chapter 2. Keep a finger in Proverbs 23. Go to John chapter 2. John chapter 2. It's in the New Testament. Just go right. You'll get there. Or go left to the table of contents and it'll tell you what page to go to and then go right. Okay, However you need to get there. John chapter 2 verse 1. On the third day there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee. And the mother of Jesus was there. Both Jesus and His disciples were invited to the wedding. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to Him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman! (laughs) The word in the Greek there actually is is more kindly than that, although to say the word doesn't sound kindly because it's gune. (coughs) Gune. I remember in high school we used to call each other, you goon. Anyway, gune was uh, was an affectionate, it was a a nice way of uh, speaking to his mom. So it wasn't like, Woman! Woman, what does that have to do with us? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Catholics, listen, whatever he says to you, do it. Those are the last recorded words of Mary we have. Whatever he says to you, do it. Verse 6. Now there were six stone water pots set there for the Jewish custom of purification, each containing 20 or 30 gallons each. Jesus said to them, fill the water pots with water. So they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Draw some out now and take it to the head waiter. So they took it to him. When the head waiter tasted the water which had become wine, and did not know where it came from, but the servants who had drawn the water they knew, the head waiter called the bridegroom and said to him, Every man serves the good wine first. And when the people have drunk freely, then he serves the poorer wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This beginning of His signs, Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested His glory, and His disciples believed in Him. (laughs) What? Really? Now see, I probably would have chosen, oh, walking on water as as a way to start off the ministry, you know? Maybe healing a few lepers, or or someone lame, or someone born blind. You know, maybe feeding the 5,000. Now that would have been a good kickstart to a ministry. Jesus changed water... To wine. Why? Well, we're going to come back and think about that in a few minutes. But wine in the Bible is a picture of celebration. And there was a wedding celebration. And Jesus did what was necessary to encourage, to maintain, to continue that celebration. Wine in the Bible, though, is also a picture, and this may be another reason why Jesus chose it, of blood. It's a picture of blood and sacrifice. Three years later, Matthew 26, verse 26 tells us, When they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after a blessing, He broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat. This is My body. And when He had taken a cup and given thanks, He gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you, for this is My blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Wine in Scripture. Joy 
and blood. Celebration and sacrifice. Wine portrays both. Now please understand, the question is not whether wine is inherently wicked. It's not. It's a substance. A glass of wine sitting on a table is a substance. You know, Paul told Timothy at one point, take wine medicinally. You have stomach problems, use a little bit of wine, it's going to settle your stomach. Wine, like an aspirin. Like an ibuprofen. There are, uh, when wine is fermented, there are, you know, properties to it. But if it just sits there on the table, it's benign. You know, it's not until we take it in that it starts to do something. And it's not until we continue to take it in that it does more. But I was thinking about wine as, as a somewhat benign substance. I mean, it's, it's okay to talk about it. I mean, it's not a big deal. It's just, it is what it is. Kind of like our vacation Bible school. Like the music of our vacation Bible school. You've probably seen the video up here. We're kicking it old school. Uh, 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 uh. You know, guys looking kind of gangsta. Three white dads. <laughs> and we have actually gotten some complaints. VBS hasn't even started. We've gotten complaints. I kid you not. Uh, complaints about, you know, I just don't think, I, 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 I find the music disgusting. Let me say something. Just a side note about this music for Vacation Bible School. I listened to it before we ever played it. And whether or not you like the style of music, I'm not concerned about that. But please understand, music is not inherently Christian or secular. Music is noise put together in different ways. That's all it is. The issue is the message with the music. I, I mentioned a few weeks back, I went with my son Hayden to watch Disciple in concert. If you don't know anything about Disciple, they are what you could call a Christian screamo band. <laughs> Enough said. And all the way up to the concert, I just he would play songs and I would go, yeah, that's great, son. And I'd read the lyrics and go, okay. <laughs> you know, at least the message is good, the message is getting in, you know. And then I went to the concert and afterwards I went to, you know, Disciples and Newsboys. And I came out going, oh, Disciples awesome. And, and he was like, newsboys are awesome. So we kind of crossed you know, over there a little bit. But the issue is not the music. The issue is the message that comes with it. And our Vacation Bible School, the message is putting the Bible back in Vacation Bible School. How can it be better? So, anyway, whatever you decide. It's, it's like McDonald's. McDonald's is not inherently wicked. It's not, you know, it's not. Now, for some of you, you might say, but I know what it does to me. Exactly. I, I get that. You know, it, it, it's not going to hurt you if you drive by. It's just when you drive through. That's when it becomes a problem. <laughs> Here's my concern this morning. And as we approach and think about alcohol a little bit and wine and drinking, the issue at hand is how it impacts body and soul and spirit. That's the issue. What is the impact to body, to soul, to spirit? The issue is not prohibition. 18th Amendment, prohibition. And it was decided because of all the evils that come with alcohol, and there are many, it was decided that our country would be better off if we just said no drinking anywhere, no sale of liquor, all it's gone. And you know how that worked. It just took us a few amendments to the 21st Amendment when we finally said, no, prohibition's gone. Why? Because you cannot legislate morality. You can tell people, you have to be moral. 
ultimately they will not be. Ultimately, they're going to go head-to-head with it, choose against it. In fact, the worst thing you can do, and this is why I don't like religion, the worst thing you can do is legislate righteousness. We will be righteous. And if you're not, go to another church. And the church gets smaller and smaller and smaller. Because you can't force it. It's got to be a chosen thing. So it's not about prohibition this morning. The issue is wisdom. It's wisdom. Go back to Proverbs okay, 23, verse 19. Listen, my son, and be wise. And direct your heart in the way. Do not be with heavy drinkers of wine or gluttonous eaters of meat, for the heavy drinker and the glutton will come to poverty, and drowsiness will clothe with rags. Now, I'm not even dealing with gluttony this morning. That's an issue down the line probably. I don't know. But whether it's eating or drinking, the primary concern for followers of Jesus Christ is what is the impact on my body, on my mind, and especially on my spirit. Because Paul said in Romans 14, 17, the kingdom of God is not about eating or drinking. The kingdom of God is about righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. I want you to think just for a moment about alcohol. Let me give you a few statistics to kind of run through your brains. According to the CDC's Alcohol-Related Disease Impact Tool, between 2001 and 2005, there were 79,000 deaths from excessive alcohol use. Annually. Annually. Approaching 400,000 people died in five years from excessive alcohol use. It is the third leading cause of death in America. Excessive alcohol. More recent statistics. Let's get a little more specific here. From the CDC and the National Center for Health. 20% of all freezing deaths are alcohol related. 25% of all choking deaths are alcohol related. 32% of all deaths in motor vehicle accidents are alcohol related. 50% of all deaths by falling are alcohol-related. I don't have a drinking problem. I drink, I fall down, no problem. Well, 50% of falling deaths are because of alcohol. 55% of all deaths by fire are alcohol-related. 60% of all suicides, alcohol-related. 65% of all rapes are alcohol-related. 67% of all murders are alcohol-related. 76% of all aircraft deaths are alcohol-related. So you might want to check what the pilots got in the cockpit before you have your seat. (laughs) What are we drinking there, Captain? (laughs) 81% of all criminal court cases, 81% are alcohol-related. You know what especially concerns me is when it comes to Christians in the church. Maybe this won't surprise you so much. It did me. The use of alcohol among Christians is increasing faster than in the general population today. How different are we really? How much has the Holy Spirit really changed us and made us so unique and so different and so filled with light? Sons and daughters of light, remember Paul said. So much so that the world looks and sees a different kind of person who follows Jesus. Man, when I, I read that statistic, that it's growing, alcohol use is moving faster among us 
than the general population. I just I shake my head and I think, wait a minute, didn't Paul say we are not of night and of darkness? Didn't he say let us not sleep as others do? Let us be alert and sober? That's what I read. Apparently more Christians are filling up on wine than on the Holy Spirit. Or perhaps we would see a bigger difference. Verse 29, he says, Who has woe and who has sorrow? Who has contentions? Who has complaining? Who has wounds without cause? Who has redness of eyes? Those who linger long over wine. Those who go to taste mixed wine. Now Solomon, who wrote this, has been credited as as being the wisest man ever to live, with the exception perhaps of Jesus. Well, with the exception definitely of Jesus, who is wisdom. Solomon, credited as this incredibly wise man, given wisdom by God, a wisdom par excellence. And so, you know what Solomon did with it? He became a fool. He used his wisdom foolishly. In fact, that's what the entire book of Ecclesiastes is about, coming to a barn near you very soon. (laughs) He talks about, in the book of Ecclesiastes, about all the use. He says, I use my wisdom to try everything. And he did. Sexual pleasure drug abuse, riches, labor, anything you can think of, Solomon tried it and he applied his wisdom to it to see, to, to study it, to understand it, to see what the impact was on life. Listen to what he says, Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verse 3. I explored with my mind how to stimulate my body with wine while my mind was guiding me wisely and how to take a hold of follies until I could see what good there is for the sons of men to do under heaven the few years of their lives. He says in verse 10 of chapter 2, I did not withhold from my heart any pleasure, for my heart was pleased because of all my labor, and this was my reward for all my labor. Have you heard that ever said? I have worked all week long. I am going out tonight to get drunk because I deserve to get drunk. I've worked hard for this. This is my chance to go do what I want to do. And Solomon goes, yeah, I get it. I did that. I tried it. I applied my wisdom to it to see what would be the outcome. You want to know what the outcome was? In that same chapter, verse 11 of Ecclesiastes 2, Behold, all was vanity, emptiness, striving after the wind, and there was no profit under the sun. So he says in verse 17, I hated life. I hated it. Everything is futility. Everything is emptiness. Vanity of vanities, he concludes the book with. It's all emptiness. This is the smartest guy ever to live. And then he turns around and he says, Listen, my son, be wise. Not like your father was wise. Be wise. Everything was emptiness until Solomon got to the point where he hated his life. The best he could get was a few moments of pleasure. His reward, a short buzz. That was it. Until his head cleared and he looked around and he saw that everything was vanity again. Wow. Had a great time last night. Woke up with a banging headache and with the same life I had that I tried to forget last night, still here. It's still here. Now you might think Solomon drank to avoid depression. 
especially over the vanity and despair of his life. But apparently it's just the opposite. A popular belief among doctors and social scientists has been that many teens begin alcohol use and sexual activity to deal with depression. However, a study published in the October 2008 edition of the American Journal of Preventive Medicine reverses those beliefs. Health policy researcher Dr. Denise Dion Halfor's comments, quote, Findings from the study show depression came on after alcohol and or sexual activity, not the other way around. The data was gathered from a national survey of over 13,491 adolescents. A large group of these teens, about 25%, were called abstainers. They had never had sex, smoked, drank alcohol, or taken drugs, and only 4% of that group of kids were likely to experience any form of depression. However, the study also showed among the 75% who had used alcohol and experimented with sex, girls who engaged in drinking were two to three times more likely to experience depression than non-drinking girls. Boys who engaged in drinking were four to five times more likely to experience depression than boys in the abstaining group. So this secular study... And the statistics from the CDC and secular world organizations declare alcohol precedes depression. Yeah, of course it does. It's a depressant. (laughs) That's what the drug does, is it depresses. That's the whole point. That's the essence of it. And it's amazing, these statistics tell us what Solomon declared 3,000 years ago. The same thing. Alcohol doesn't lift depression, it causes depression. And so you got to wonder, after a long, hard, depressing, difficult day, why does a man sit down and have a drink to relax? If you're bummed out and you have something to drink, guess what? Physiologically, you will be more bummed. If you've been depressed lately, and you think having a glass of wine or a couple of beers will help, the Bible says just the opposite. It's not going to help. It's going to make it worse. People don't drink because they're depressed. They're depressed because they drink. Now maybe you know this. I learned it in junior high. One 12-ounce beer is equal in the alcohol content to one 6-ounce glass of wine, which is equal in the alcohol content of one shot of straight liquor. You might say, well, I don't touch that hard stuff. I wouldn't drink the straight liquor. Well, two glasses of wine, you've just had two shots. Two beers, two shots. What's interesting, each one of these uh, contains one ounce of alcohol. So in a 12-ounce beer, one ounce is alcohol. Oh, good, then I can have more. In a six-ounce glass of wine, one ounce is alcohol. In a one-ounce shot of liquor, one ounce is alcohol. Okay? So what? So Solomon says, who has woe, who has sorrow, who has contentions, who has complaining, who has wounds without cause? Who has wounds without cause? He's indicating that with drinking, something's happening that is wounding. What what could that possibly be? Several years ago, a bunch of us went to a a men's conference down at Calvary Fellowship, and John Corson was speaking. And he shared something I thought so interesting. I actually wrote it in the back of the book of Proverbs in my Bible. And then I looked it up this past week just to be sure. Is that really accurate? And it is. Every ounce, every ounce of alcohol burns away 10,000 dendrites in the brain. One ounce of alcohol, 
fries, 10,000 dendrites permanently, irrevocably, they are burned out of your brain. One ounce of alcohol does this. When autopsies are done, medical examiners can look at a brain of, of someone who has died and they can tell just by looking at the brain if the person was a heavy drinker, a moderate drinker, a light drinker, or someone who has never had alcohol. Simply by looking at the dendrites left in the brain. So what's a dendrite? It's the short branched projection of the neurons. Its job is to conduct electrical stimulation and impulses transmitted from the body. No wonder drinking dulls the senses. Because drinking is frying dendrites. Drinking is frying your brain's ability to receive those electrical impulses and respond and react normally the way God intended for you to. Uh, Well, Pastor Rick, I happen to know something about dendrites, that there are billions of them in your head. That's great. I need every one I can get. Okay? And the older I get, the more I'm thinking, i got to protect some dendrites here. But it's not just dendrites. In verse 29, Solomon says drinking causes woe and sorrow and contention and complaining. Wounds without cause and redness of eyes. And if I knew bubblegum caused all that, I'm not sure I would chew it. And I might just say, maybe that's not something I need if, if that's the outcome, if that's what it does. Well, that's what your Bible says. Okay, whatever. CDC, National Institute of Health, you know, secular organizations all over the place agree that this is exactly what alcohol does, and yet we wink at it. We say, it's no big deal. I'm out with my friends. It's a fancy meal. I got a glass of wine. It's cool. You know? Just having a beer on a hot afternoon, which, by the way, I don't get because I don't think it's that quenching. Dude, give me water. <laughs> I'm having a beer because I'm hot and sweaty. Really? The stuff looks like urine anyway. I don't get it. <laughs> I said we're just going to say it like it is. <laughs> yeah, all right, Rick. That, yeah, I see where you're going with all this. But you got to deal with this issue. Jesus changed water to wine. Yeah, I know. We started with that passage. I was here when we talked about that. What about that? That one has tripped me up for my entire ministry life and most of my Christian life. After first reading that story and going, how does this work? How does the Bible in one place warn against drinking, warn against even just wine? Be careful. Watch out. Bad stuff. Not a good direction. And then all of a sudden, Jesus comes along and goes, hey, let's fill the barrels. Party on, dude! And I've sat and listened to sermons where the pastor said that's exactly what Jesus was doing. He turned the water to wine to keep the party going. Woohoo! got to think about something. In fact, what we need to do, and this is important with any Bible study, is you've got to, buy, you've got to apply Jesus' culture to, to the Bible. You've got to apply the culture to what is being said. Not our culture. And this is where we get tripped up. We apply American culture to biblical activity and we come out with confusing results. Let me explain. In Jesus' day, first century, okay, there were three specific kinds of wine. Perhaps you didn't know this. Three kinds of wine, not just one. And I'm not talking about, you know, your Chardonnay or your... No. Three kinds of wine. Number one, wine for preservation. Wine for preservation, fermented wine. Without fermentation, if you want, or without refrigeration, if you want preservation, you need fermentation. Okay? And so there's wine for that, that they would preserve it. 
that that was a way of preserving the juice and being able to keep it in barrels or in a wineskin in a house, and they would do that. But understand this, not just biblical scholars, but historical scholars agree that the average household wine of Jesus' day didn't contain half the degree of alcohol that our typical wine does today. Because the point wasn't to get drunk. The point was to preserve the wine. So it was only fermented to the point that it would be preserved. Not that it would be high in alcohol content. Wine for preservation, second type of wine. Wine for intoxication. Yes, they did make wine for that purpose. The heavy-duty stuff. A type of drink made for the express purpose of getting a buzz, and that's what Solomon is warning about here in Proverbs 23. Be careful. Don't look at the wine when it goes down. When it's red, it sparkles in the cup. When it goes down, smooth. Solomon says it's drinking for the feeling and you got to watch out for this. We read this and talked about it for a bit Thursday night. I was curious what our shepherds would think and get their responses and we talked. And Mitch read through this whole thing all the way down to verse 35 and Mitch goes, man, this reads like someone with a nasty hangover. <laughs> and it does. And he's right. This is written by someone who knows what he's talking about. He's not assuming. He's not guessing. He's saying, this is the deal. This is what happens. I know. I apply my wisdom to it. This is what happens. Wine for preservation. Wine for intoxication. Third, number three, don't miss this. Wine without fermentation. Now, in our culture, we'd say, there's no such thing. We call that grape juice. Welch's, right? Right? In the Bible, there was one. In Jesus' day, there was specifically, they called it wine. Wine without fermentation. Oinos in the Greek. The Greek word oinos, which is the word in John chapter 2, is the word anytime you see the word wine translated. It's also the same word anytime you see fruit of the vine. Non-alcoholic as well as alcoholic. So that alone tells us it's possible that the wine that Jesus changed from the water was either wine for preservation which had some fermentation to it, or wine for intoxication, as some like to preach, or wine without fermentation. Which one was it, Rick? We cannot be 100% sure. But let me give you some position here that I, I found this fascinating. A theologian passed away in the 80s, Samuel Bacciocci. Samuel Bacciocci, he's an Italian theologian, so he would know about wine. And he wrote a book called Wine and the Bible, a biblical study on the use of alcoholic beverages. And in this book, you can find it online. I would encourage you to. It's, it's out of print, but you can still get copies in different places, Amazon Marketplace or whatever. You can also just read, I think five of the chapters in it, you can just read online. And his research and his study into this is absolutely fascinating. And i got to share a little of this with you. Uh, he talks about wine, oinos, being either fermented or unfermented juice from grapes. It's translated both ways, not only in the Bible, but also in secular history. It can go either way. Now, before we go any further, someone might say, as I thought in my head, yeah, but Jesus made the good stuff. You know, John chapter 2, verse 9. The head waiter tasted the water which had become wine, did not know where it came from. The head waiter called the bridegroom and said to him, Every man serves the good wine first, and when the people have drunk freely, then he serves the poorer wine, but you kept the good wine until now. Now here's the problem. We apply our own cultural standards to that verse. Because in America, in our culture, the good stuff is the more potent. 
The good wine is the more fermented. Yeah, that was a good year. And we look at it that way. That is not the application of the good wine in John chapter 2. How do you know? Listen to this. In the Roman world of New Testament times, the best wines were those whose alcoholic potency had been removed by boiling or, or, infiltra- or filtration. Pliny. Who's Pliny? Pliny the Elder. Pliny was a guy who was alive at the, in the days of Jesus. He was not a Christian. He was not a Jew. He was a Roman philosopher, a Roman writer, a Roman historian. Pliny said, quote, Wines are most beneficial when all their potency has been removed by the strainer. Plutarch is another one who was around in Jesus' day, contemporary of Jesus. He was not a Christian. He was not a Jew. He was just a secular Roman guy. And Plutarch pointed out that wine was, quote, much more pleasant to drink when it neither inflames the brain nor infests the mind or passions because its strength has been removed through frequent filtering. Now these are secular guys in the time of Jesus. And what they're saying and what the indication is, the good stuff was non-alcoholic. The good stuff had the alcohol removed because it tasted better. You know wine's an acquired taste. right? Beer's an acquired taste. If you've never had a sip of wine or a tasted beer, I guarantee the first sip you have, you go, why do people drink this stuff? Well, it's an acquired taste. Yeah, so is cocaine. Pliny, Plutarch, another guy by the name of Horace who just preceded Jesus by 20, 30 years, they all described wine as good or mentioned that the best wine was harmless and innocent. Oinos. That wine that was unfermented. The most useful wine was that which had little strength and the most wholesome wine was that which had not been adulterated by the addition of anything to the must or to the juice. Pliny expressly says that a good wine is one that is destitute of spirit. It should not be assumed, therefore, that the good wine was stronger, alcoholically speaking, than any other kind of wine. Well, that changes everything. If, in fact, the good wine was the more tasty rather than the more alcoholic, that's a different story in John chapter 2, isn't it? Oh, Rick, you preachers love to dig up stuff like that. Yeah, we do. Henry Morris. Henry Morris, who is a uh, Bible commentarian, wrote a book called The Genesis Record. Excellent book. This guy's very bright. He wrote, The wine Christ made was of high quality, not because of its alcohol content, but because it was new wine. New wine. What is new wine? It's wine that hasn't had a chance to ferment yet. Now, he... he it, it, this is interesting to me. I'll just read what he, he said. It was not old decayed wine as it would have to be if it were intoxicating. There was no time for the fermentation process to break down the structure of its energy-giving sugars into disintegrative alcohols. It was thus a fitting representation of his glory and was appropriate to serve as the very first of his great miracles. So what Morris is saying is Jesus created the wine instantaneously right there in the vat. It didn't have time to ferment. Well, yeah, but Jesus could, I mean, he can make something older, right? I mean, when God created the world, the first day of creation, there were big trees that would have looked older than they really were. So come on, I understand that. But it's an interesting thought that perhaps that wine that we've all read about in Jesus' first miracle was not alcoholic at all. 
it was just really good grape juice. It's entirely possible. You might come to a different conclusion than I have about the wedding at Cana. But if you do, here's the kicker. If you assume that the wine was alcoholic in the wedding feast at Cana, you've got to square the moral responsibility of Jesus Christ making a high-potency alcoholic drink for people who, following the same line of reason, were already drunk. Is that okay? That's been my problem for years. In trying to justify, if you've ever tried to justify wine or drinking is okay because Jesus' first miracle was the water to wine... You still have to deal with how can Jesus, who is the picture of wisdom, do something that would encourage people to do very unwise things? How can Jesus in His first miracle help people get drunk? Which, if it was alcoholic, that's exactly what it would have done. Got to deal with that. We've got to face these things honestly. If you use John chapter 2 to justify drinking, you have to ask, was Jesus justified in getting people drunk? Would He have done that? Besides, you know, there are those who say, well, I drink because I want to be like Jesus. (laughs) And He did, right? So I want to be like Him. Well, if you really want to be like Jesus, as of this moment, He is a teetotaler. You remember what he said? Matthew 26, 29, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until the day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. So he's going to get drunk then? He's going to drink it new. So that may even then be new wine. I mean, Welches will have nothing on the wine of the kingdom. Let me just tell you. And Jesus says, I'm abstaining until I come back. I will not drink it. So honestly... If I want to be more like Jesus, I'm going to wait until He pours out. I'm going to wait until He says, yeah, yeah, cheers, the kingdom is here. And we're not going to be disappointed, gang. That wine, when Jesus brings it, is going to be amazing. And don't be disappointed if it's non-alcoholic. <laughs> Students of wisdom, we've got to deal honestly with the Word. It's so frustrating to me, and I've done it so much in my life, and you probably have to played around with the Word of God to adjust it to fit my lifestyle. Instead of saying, what does it say? How can I adjust my lifestyle to be more in keeping with the Word of God? That is pursuing the righteousness that God has for me. What do I have to do to be more like Him? Not What do I have to do to Scripture to make it more like me? Verse 32. At the last... It bites like a serpent and it stings like a viper. Or the word there, viper, in the Hebrew is adder. The adder. The adder in Israel whose bite is deadly. And this is the description that Solomon uses. He knew this well. He says, sons, boys, listen to me. At the end of the day, this drink will bite you. This drink will cause you problems. Those who drink this heavily... Don't be around them. It's going to be issues for you. Verse 33, Your eyes will see strange things, and your mind will utter perverse things. You remember back on the first day of the ordination of the high priest, Aaron was being ordained. And his sons, Nadab and Abihu, were being ordained right there with him. And you know what? The Bible says they got a little tipsy. They got a little drunk. And they said, Hey, this is great! 
look at Dad's getting ordained and we're getting ordained and Dad's got a you know the fire pan there and he's doing the offering, so let's do it. And they grabbed their own fire pans and they went and the Bible says in the book of Numbers they offered up strange fire. Not the fire God ordained. Not what God wanted to have go on. Their own kind of self-glorifying flash in the pan, as it were. And what happened? Well, God's fire came out of the tabernacle and ate them up. Burned them out. And Solomon says, your eyes will see strange things. Your mind will utter perverse things. And this is where it gets critical, gang. The word mind here is leb in the Hebrew. Sometimes translated mind, sometimes translated understanding, but the actual literal translation is heart. Heart. What are you saying, Rick? Here's the real danger. It's not that drinking affects us physically. It does. Dendrites and all. It's not that drinking affects us mentally. It, it does. You know, it gets into the brain and makes us see strange things and speak strange ways. It's that alcohol gets into the heart. The spirit. It affects us spiritually. No, no, no. I separate the two. You can't. You cannot separate out your body from your mind from your spirit. It is all one. In the same way Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are one, so mind, body, and spirit in your life are one. You can't pull them apart. Alcohol drinking affects us, whether you want to believe it or not, at a spirit level, at a heart level. And that's what's scary about it. Benjamin Franklin once said, No man ever drank flour into his sack. No man ever drank meal into his barrel, nor happiness into his home, nor God into his heart. And Paul said in Ephesians 5.17, Don't be foolish. Remember we're talking about wisdom here? Don't be foolish. Understand what the will of the Lord is. Do not get drunk with wine, for that's dissipation. But be filled with the Spirit. The question is, would you rather have a heart, your spirit, filled with perversion or praise? With joy or drunkenness? One leaves you empty. One is just a a counterfeit, a a, a vague, lame counterfeit of the true joy that God wants to... You know, if you're wiped out at the end of the day, how about praying? Before you pour... Get down on your knees and pray. Lord, today's been a terrible day. I'm kind of down and depressed and I really need to be lifted up a little bit here. How about going where no one can hear you and singing some worship? <laughs> or where, you know, if you've got a good voice, where someone can hear you. <laughs> How about turning it around a, a little bit here? Verse 34, he says, You'll be like one who lies down in the middle of the sea or one who lies down on the top of a mast. In other words, what do you do with a drunken sailor? That's the question being asked. I mean, he's describing bobbing and swaying and staggering and puking and and that's all bad enough. But what is worse even than that is when you lose all sense of feeling. Verse 35, They struck me, but I did not become ill. They beat me, but I didn't know. When shall I awake? I will seek Another drink. Wow. That sounds like an alcoholic to me. I'm not sure if I remember what happened to me last night. I got bruises, so something did. You know? I'm still feeling kind of woozy. Bartender, another round. And that's what Solomon is describing. 
This picture of numbness and cluelessness and lack, lack of awareness. It's waking up woozy and trying to clear the, the head. It, it's waking up bruised and wondering, how did this all happen to me? And some might say, exactly, Pastor, I drink to forget. That's why I do it. I drink to numb my feelings. Because I don't want to feel this pain. Can I just say something to you all gently? God gave us pain. That was His decision. He constructed the nerve endings in our body to be able to feel pain. He constructed us emotionally in such a way that we would hurt. Why? Because this is it's warning for us. There's a whole system where God has created us in such a way where the child who knows what it feels like to get burned does not stick his hand a second time on the stove. Pain! You know what you have without pain? Leprosy. Leprosy is when the nerve endings are not working and so the leper will walk along and and re-injure themselves time and time and time again in the same place because they don't feel it. Until finally it gets infected and sick and the hand dies and falls off. That's where you go if you don't have pain. Pain is not a bad thing. Pain is a God-given thing to guide us and direct us in life. Even emotional pain? Yes. Even emotional pain. Why that? Because it draws us to Him. I'm hurting here, Lord. You can numb yourself. Or you can say, Father, this, this, is, this is terrible. I don't like how this feels. Paul said it three times. He said, Lord, i got a thorn in my side. I want it taken out. This is not helpful to me. It hurts. And the Lord said to Paul in 2 Corinthians 12.9, My grace is sufficient for you. For power is perfected in weakness. And Paul's response is great. Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses so the power of Christ may dwell in me. Had a hard day? Pray it through. Hurting, painful over some issue, some problem, some tragedy in your life? Give it to Jesus and let Him work His perfect power in your weakness. But our culture says, numb it. Take something. Got a headache? Take an Advil. Had a long day? Glass of wine. It'll make you feel better. No, it'll help you feel less. Well, I don't agree with that. Well, I'm just talking biologically here. And there's no question about it. What about Jesus? Did Jesus numb His pain? As He hung on the cross? We're told in Matthew 27, 34, they gave him wine to drink mixed with gall. After tasting, he was unwilling to drink. Why? Well, because gall was a painkiller. Roman anesthesia. They would give it to people on the cross to numb the pain so people would stay on the crosses longer. Two, three days. Jesus rejected it. Why? Because Jesus would feel every ounce of my sorrow and my sin. Jesus would take on every ounce of your guilt, your shame, our sin in the world. He chose to feel and absorb all of it so that we would not have to be going out to get numb with other substance so that we would come to the only true substance, which is Jesus Christ. Don't drink to numb. Don't drink to forget or to soothe or to calm. Man, woman, be filled with the Holy Spirit. And I'm not meaning to guilt trip anybody here. I'm really not. Legalism is not the issue. Again, what is the issue? Wisdom. Wisdom. 
There's just plain good wisdom here. Why is it? Why is it that the use of alcohol among Christians is growing at a faster rate than in the general population? Why is that the case? I I know why. I can tell you why. We're free in Christ. We're free in Christ. We have stripped ourselves of the puritanical past of religious Christianity and now we're free. And we're free to enjoy and free to engage. Pastor Rick and people have told me this, I'm a grace-covered, free child of God and I'm not bound by legalism or law or the old guilt traps of, of old Christianity. No, I'm free. I can drink if I want to. Yes, you can. You can. Absolutely. Before you take your next drink, can I just ask you to consider three things? Three quick things. These are not like notes that take half an hour each. Turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Paul deals a lot in the letter to the church at Corinth about legalism and righteousness because they were were in that place. Church at Corinth. (laughs) They were a party church. They were like San Diego State University of Colleges. They were, you know, a party church. And they were the ones that, you know, in Corinth, they were getting drunk at communion. And they were very, very gifted church. Gifts of the Spirit were, were really given to this church, but they were just using them wildly. And so the whole letter of the First Corinthians, Paul's trying to rein in and go, okay, listen, look, it's not about legalism, but it is about righteousness. Listen to what he says, verse 12. 1 Corinthians 6.12 All things are lawful for me. And you can underline that, put an exclamation point after it, and it is absolutely true. In Jesus Christ, you are saved by grace. You are not under the law anymore. Hallelujah! All things are lawful for me, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. The late Adrian Rogers put it this way. First, man takes a drink. Then, drink takes a drink. Then, drink takes the man. America today, by conservative estimates, boasts 35 million alcoholics. 35 million. This is conservatively. It's probably more than that. And I guarantee you, not a single alcoholic living in America today took their first drink thinking, I'm going to be an alcoholic. This is where I'm headed. I'm going to be taken over by this stuff and it's going to rule and ruin my life. And the question is, when does the drink begin to master the drinker? When does that happen? At what point does a person lose their freedom and start to get mastered by the bottle? Well, for me, it's after four. Okay, you're an idiot. For me, it's after I can do one or two, and I'm just fine. How do you know? Let me tell you personally, I don't know what my jumping off point is. I don't. Is it one drink? Is it two? When I get comfortable drinking three? I shared first hour... You know, drinking in some ways, like so many other physical things, it's like exercise. When you first step on an elliptical trainer at a gym, man, ten minutes and you're done. You're off that thing. It's it's horrible. It's painful. Do it for three or four weeks and you're going 25 minutes, half an hour, no problem. 
It's the same thing with alcohol. After a while, it's like, yeah, I can handle, I can handle one. Okay, I'll stop at one. Yeah, and down the line, you're going, I can handle two. I'll stop at two. That's my limit. That's, that's where I don't jump off. At what point? Where's the jumping off? I know this personally. I am free in Christ, and I don't want to be a slave to some stupid, senseless, worldly concept of liberty. You're free to drink. Yeah, but I'm also free in Christ. I would rather be free in Christ. I don't want to give up my freedom in Jesus so that I can have a glass of wine, a beer every now and then. I don't want to jeopardize my freedom in Christ. I will not, Paul says, be mastered by anything. One master. Master Jesus. Yeah, well, I'm strong. Good for you. I'm glad you are. I'm not. I'm not. I, I told someone after second service the whole reason I went into ministry was I had to have some reason to go to church. <laughs> I knew I'd have to be there. Cheryl and I started volunteering in youth ministry. Jake, we volunteered because we knew if we volunteered we had to show up. We needed some motivation to get up on a Sunday and get to church. I'm weak. Maybe you're not. Maybe you're strong. Paul would say to you in 1 Corinthians 10.12, Let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. I am free not to do anything that might strip me of freedom in Christ. That's, that's the first verse. Look over in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9. Two chapters over. Second verse. And Paul continues to talk about these things throughout, and I encourage you just to pour over these few chapters here. 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9, Take care that this liberty of yours, listen, does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. Maybe you are the strong one. Maybe you have set for yourself very clear limits, and you will not be mastered by it. Maybe you can have the one glass and you stop, and that's all you've ever done. Friends, listen to me. How do you know the one you're drinking with isn't on the razor's edge of a lifetime of alcoholism? Maybe you're strong and you're fine to do it. How do you know they are? How do you know as you associate with people and you do it in a social drinking setting that there's not someone there with you and you're just you're drinking together and no one's drinking too much? How do you know that person is not right on the edge of their stepping off point? You don't know. Parents, moms and dads, and I'm back around again, as many of you know, starting over as it were. How do we know the child or the children we're raising isn't one drink away from an addiction? Cheryl and I know a young man from several years ago who was totally with it, together, clean, straight, raised in a Christian family. Everything was great until he went to college. He went to one party, got stoned, and he never stopped. All it took was once, and he was gone. And he spent his life in drug addiction, in and out of prison, sorrow, woes, contentions, problems, as, as Solomon describes. How do you know the one you're with isn't on the edge? Are you willing to risk someone else's freedom for your own? I mean, are we not supposed to love God first and love people second? And if we truly love people, then aren't we going to be more concerned about their freedom than ours? Something to think about. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 23. Third verse. 1 Corinthians 10, 23. Paul says, All things are lawful, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful, but not all things edify. 
Let no one seek his own good, but that of his neighbor. Does drinking edify? Does your drinking build up or encourage your neighbor? And these are important, honest, real questions. you just got to ask. Again, I'm not here to legislate. You've got to deal with this in the same way that I have to deal with this. What does the Bible say? How then shall we live? How do I live righteously and not religiously? Is what I'm doing a benefit, an encouragement of building up to people around me? Or might it be tearing down, even if I don't see it? Back to the book of Proverbs. We'll end there. I know we're going long. Thanks for staying with me. Proverbs chapter 31. And we'll finish. Proverbs 31, not 23. We're going to look at this chapter again in a few weeks when we come to the end of Proverbs, probably from a different perspective. But just listen for a moment here. Proverbs chapter 31, verse 4. It is not for kings, O Lemuel. It is not for kings to drink wine or for rulers to desire strong drink. They will drink and forget what is decreed and pervert the rights of all the afflicted. Give strong drink to him who is perishing and wine to him whose life is bitter. Are you perishing and bitter? In other words, are you lost? Are you a lost person? Are you in a place in your life where you can honestly say, yeah, I'm going to hell in a handbasket? If you are, drink up. Drink up. Because it's the only pleasure you're going to ever have. That's all the pleasure the world has to offer you is momentary pleasure. So if you're hell-bent on your own destruction, drink up. Because it is the best you'll get. But, but, there's an alternative. Jesus offers you the everlasting joy of eternal salvation. Jesus offers you a chance to go on forever with Him. Blessed and righteous and joyful and celebrating. Verse 7, Let him drink and forget his poverty and remember his trouble no more. Are you poor? Drink up. If you're poor, it may be the only sense of richness that you'll ever feel. So, man, drink up. Unless, of course, you'd like to give your life over to Jesus. For you know, Paul says, 2 Corinthians 8 9, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though He was rich, for your sakes He became poor, so that you, through His poverty, might become rich. What Solomon is saying here at the end of the Proverbs In Proverbs 31, I'll explain why I think it's Solomon when we get there. But what he's saying is, for the lost and the poor, drinking to forget or to numb is the best you'll ever have. So if you're in that place and you want to remain in that place, drink up because that's the best you'll get. But Jesus offers salvation and righteousness and clear-headed joy, which is far better because you remember it. And you can live in it, the richness of His grace. Do you desire wisdom? Would you be wise in the Lord, filled with His Spirit, free in Christ Jesus? Not mastered by anything. Not robbing someone else of their freedom for your freedom. Not undermining, but edifying and building up your neighbors. If that's where you want to be, Invite Jesus to be your one and only Master. Be mastered by Him.
Because He's the bottom line. It's all about Jesus. And by the way, if you're mastered by Jesus, if He becomes your master, you will enjoy the best of the fruit of the vine with Jesus when He comes in His kingdom. Hallelujah. Can't wait for that day. Let's pray together. Lord, we have a lot to think about here and to consider. And my prayer for you this morning is that you would not let us wander out of here and leave this message behind. Father, I pray that we will struggle with this. I pray that Christians, those in this fellowship who who drink casually or, or see no problem with it, I just pray, Lord, that we will all think through these things and ask You what You would have us to do, not what Pastor Rick wants, not what Pastor Rick thinks, Lord, but what You would have us to do in response to Your Word and Your Spirit. And may we live free in Christ Jesus. In Jesus I pray. Amen.